0: Good afternoon. Uh, It's good to see all of you. Uh, Welcome to Zoe Community Church. Um, We're continuing our Advent series, something we haven't always done here at Zoe, but we wanted to spend a few weeks, especially because we finished our last series through Titus, uh, preparing ourselves for Christmas, or more accurately, what Christmas means, why Christians celebrate this season. So if you could open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. We're spending uh, these three weeks in Luke, the second chapter, third book of the New Testament, Luke 2. And we've called our Advent series Behold, right, because it sounds cool. Uh, doesn't it sound a little cool, maybe? Maybe too cool for Zoe. Uh, but really, that's not the reason why we called it Behold at all. Uh, we're not trying to be cool. It comes to us straight from Scripture, We read it, it, uh, the angel said, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So this year for Advent, we basically just wanted to heed that call, right? To behold, to look carefully upon these things, this good news that Jesus Christ was born into the world. So what we're doing is kind of part exposition of Luke 2. We're not um, going through it maybe as in-depth or as deep as we would if we were just doing Luke. Um, but what we're doing is we're trying to focus on seeing Christmas through the eyes of the people who were there. Because right? there are people who saw these things, who witnessed the birth of Jesus and all the circumstances around it. And I think sometimes we're, we're so familiar with the story, we just kind of glance at it. But these people saw it. And they wondered and they marveled. So we want to you know, take some time to kind of, maybe we can't see exactly through their eyes, but to look over their shoulders and to experience what they experienced as much as we can through the pages of scripture. So Luke 2, I'm going to read from verse 21 and we're going to go all the way to verse 35. Luke 2, 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you are prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you have made us for yourself and that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. God, there are so many distractions that we bring into this room right now that we carry with us in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, there are problems weighing us down. There are thoughts that tug at our attention. But Lord, I pray that at this moment right now, as we sit before your holy word, that we would remember that there are more important things, that there is the most important thing which is a relationship with you. God, we we ask, Father, that you would help us to see your greatness, to really understand your holiness. I pray that we would feel the weight of our sin, the vast distance between us naturally. And then I pray that as we look and witness and behold who Jesus is, that we would see that he is the one who can bridge that gap. That he is the answer to our restlessness. That he is the forgiveness for our sins. That he is the one who can bring us to you. The one we were made for. God, we need your help. We need your spirit to bring conviction, to open up our eyes to see and our ears to hear. So God, I pray that you would help us that your spirit would help us and we pray most of all that your son would be exalted and we pray these things in his name amen amen she will bear a son the scripture says and you shall call his name jesus for he will save his people from their sins that's matthew 121 we preached it like three years ago now i read a story uh, Just this week or maybe it was last week. I can't remember. Uh, And usually when I see a story that I feel like I want to share, you know, during a sermon, I write down where it's from so I can look it up again and get the details right. And if someone knows the story, then at least I don't say it wrong or whatever. And I just could not find this story. I know I read it because where else did it come from? I didn't make it up. But I looked at, I think I spent half an hour looking for it. And in my mind, I could just hear Eric saying, that's not ministry. So I was like, okay, I better like just tell the story as best as I can in my recollection. So forgive me if it's a little vague. So there was this guy, um, a writer, the writer of the story. And he was talking about how he went to visit his friend in some city. I don't know, <laughs> kind of vague, I'm sorry, no details. But he went to go visit his friend in the city. And they're catching up, and they're sitting in his house, and uh, they're drinking tea or coffee or water or soda or something. I don't know. They're drinking something, uh, and all of a sudden, his cup starts shaking. Right? You can see kind of the water or the liquid start to vibrate a little bit. And he's like, okay, that's a little weird. Uh, and then the ground starts shaking a little bit and then a little bit more and then a little bit more. And he's like, okay, is this an earthquake or what's going on? But meanwhile, his friend who he's catching up with is still just talking, going on about what's going on in his his life. And he's like, am I like seeing things? Like, What's going on here? And then he hears it, a train siren, right? A train horn, okay? It's super loud. It sounds almost like this train is going to burst through the wall of the house and just kill them, right? So he's kind of freaking out. He's having like a mini panic attack inside. Meanwhile, his friend is just so, what's going on with you? Like, what's new? And he realizes after, you know, the the sound starts going away and everything stops shaking as much that his friend lives right near the train tracks. And he's like, okay, so did you see that? He's like, yeah, don't forget, forget, don't worry about it. That happens like 15 times a day. See, his friend had lived near these railroad tracks for so long and it had happened so many times, that exact same thing, that he was numb to it. He didn't even notice it. That's why he acted like he didn't even... uh, He didn't even react to it because he didn't notice it. So it's interesting how that happens, isn't it? How even the most disruptive, shocking, incredible things can fade into the background of our lives. If we're exposed to them enough. If we allow ourselves to become numb to them. I mean, take romance as a quick example. Okay, not that your love for your spouse fades or anything, but the honeymoon stage, it ends, right? Ask anyone who's been married for six months or a year. Things change. I mean, you know what I mean. Actually, don't ask someone, okay? Don't put them on the spot in front of their spouse. Or since it's Christmas, take Christmas presents. Think of of your kids or when you were a kid. I remember when I was a kid, there's so many things that I wanted so badly. And I was like, if only I get this, then I'll be happy for the rest of my life. And then, you know, six months later, on the shelf is that very thing, my dream, whatever, collecting dust. And I want something new. Or take Christmas itself. And that's kind of what we're talking about during this Advent series. I mean, because honestly, who doesn't know this story? Right, you could ask... Pretty much anyone in America, they don't have to be a Christian. They know the Christmas story. They know the details. They know about the angel. They know about the virgin birth. They know about uh, the husband who's stressed out about it. They know that they traveled to this little town called Bethlehem. They know that the night was silent. They know about the angels. They know the story. They can even quote, maybe it's in Linus's voice, but they can quote that on this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They might not know what it means, but they know the story. And the crazy thing is, you know, we do know what it means, and I'm speaking to the Christians here. We talk about it, and we talk about the theology of it throughout the year. We talk about uh, Christmas specifically during this season, and yet even something as disruptive and shocking and, and incredible, really, as the story of God's incarnation, that the Son of God would be born as a human child into our fallen world to rescue his people from their sins. If you hear this enough and you're not careful, you can become numb. We'll hardly notice it as we carry on shopping and planning and working, traveling, hosting, and doing all these things that we do at Christmas time. Maybe we read a story with our kids, or we come to church and we hear a sermon, or we sing along to a Christmas carol on the radio. But we're numb to the true significance of what's going on in this story. Because the thing is, our souls far too easily build calluses. And so our hope and our intention is that we would take some time this this year, this December, Uh, In the weeks leading up to Christmas, to really stop and just look at what happened and to try to get our minds to wrap around these things as if for the first time. And maybe looking at Luke 2 will help. That's kind of our thought process because the person that we're looking uh, at today, the person whose shoulder we're peering over, he's not like, he's probably like the 20th most famous person when it comes to Christmas. Because everyone knows the shepherds. They know the wise men who didn't even come till later. They know about the innkeeper who doesn't even exist. He's implied in the text. It never says the innkeeper said no room. It just said there was no room. But we know this guy, the innkeeper, even more than we know the person that we're looking at today. This person, though, has a unique story to tell us because to him, this baby is everything he's wanted his whole life. This baby is not just a cute kid or even a a reason for a nice season. What this man sees in the baby Jesus is salvation itself. So we're going to look at this text in three parts. And before we get to the man I mentioned, Luke sets the scene for us. So the first part that I want to show you is what no one seems to see. What no one seems to see. Let's pick up in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So, okay, right away, this verse, okay, if you wanted to, like, break it apart and do exegesis on it, it's filled up and topped off with significance. Every single thing in here is important. The eight days, why they do this, that Jesus still was circumcised, even though he was the perfect son of God, that he was named Jesus. Even even that name is very on the nose when it comes to who Jesus is and what he's going to do. But what I want to show you guys is that none of this is that weird on the surface. Because the thing is, babies were born in Israel all the time, just as babies are born all the time today. And if you were Jewish and you had a son, then you would have him circumcised on the eighth day. That was the usual procedure. And the name Jesus, it means so much to Christians. But in that day, that name was pretty common. Like if you know something about Hebrew and Greek, Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. And the name Joshua then was common as it is now. I mean, think about how many Josh's you know today. I mean, imagine if someone told you, I'm going to name my son Joshua, and you're like, whoa, is your son the Messiah? You're not going to say that, right? Because it's a normal name. So all this to say, though there's a lot that we could dig into here on the surface, what most people saw was ordinary. Life as usual. So keep this in mind, okay? So what Luke does is he takes us to the eighth day real quick in verse 21, the circumcision, but then he fast-forwards to day 40, okay? The 40th day after Jesus is born, verse 22. And it's in these verses that Luke kind of sets the scene and fills out the picture for us. Let me read verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So let me explain what's going on here. And I'm actually going to take you somewhere. Turn with me to Leviticus 12. Keep your finger in Luke 2 if you can or put your bookmark there or something. But I'm going to take you to Leviticus Already it's becoming kind of a not-normal Christmas sermon. Don't normally go to Leviticus. Um, But I want to show you something in Leviticus 12, verses 6 through 8, because it pretty much gives us exactly why, you know, they're doing this. Are you guys there? Luke 12, verse 6. And when the days of her purifying are completed, it's talking about just a mother who has given birth, and when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter... She shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. There are two offerings, two animals. Okay, you following along? And he shall offer it before the Lord, that's verse 7, and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb... Okay, a lamb for the burnt offering. Then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Okay, so what's going on here is this is the law of the land. Even more than that, as it says repeatedly in Luke 2, the law of the Lord. This is God's law. This is what you're supposed to do. And according to the law, a woman was considered unclean for 40 days after she bore a son. That meant that she couldn't worship with people. Okay, she couldn't go to the temple. She couldn't go to synagogue. She wasn't even supposed to really interact with anyone lest they become unclean themselves. So she would lay low for seven days. And then on the eighth day, she would have her son circumcised. And then she would lay low for 33 more days until the 40th day. And then she would obey Leviticus 12. Sorry, I'm having trouble with the mic again. Sorry about that. Just every week nowadays. Um, On the fortieth day, she would go to offer a sacrifice for her purification so she could be clean and rejoin society again. Now, the law tells you to offer a lamb and a bird. Okay, but if you can't afford the lamb, then you can do two birds. So back to Luke chapter two. Back to Luke 2. What does Mary offer? What do Mary and Joseph offer here? A lamb and a bird or two birds? They offer two birds doesn't even talk about the lamb because they're not even thinking about the lamb and what does that imply about them they're not rich they're not rich now it doesn't necessarily mean that they're dirt poor okay that's what some people say like look i mean joseph had a job he was a carpenter but most likely what this is saying is they're just normal people again on the surface but if you just looked at them, they were normal people. They were not aristocrats. They weren't celebrities. Mary doesn't get special treatment as being the, uh, the mother of the Messiah. It's not like she gets to skip the line and not do any of these law things. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to do as regular people in Israel. Again, it's ordinary. You know, when Reezy, who I think is crying in the room over there right now, when she was born last year, I went to get her birth certificate, and that's probably what all the parents here did when they had kids. Um, so I went down to, like, the Collin County building or whatever, and I waited in line. Um, and, you know, I uh, was just waiting in there. I had to fill out some stuff, and then they, like, stamped something, and they gave me a piece of paper that said that Reezy is uh, born or whatever. She's a citizen of America know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, if you really want to do like an exegesis of this and really like analyze it, are birth certificates important? Absolutely. They're super important actually to like a lot of things you want to do in life. Or if you think about like even deeper, like the symbolism of it is, is it a privilege to be a citizen of the United States of America? It is, right? Like imagine if someone, you know, had dreamt, dreamt their whole life of moving here and they finally did and their kid is born. So there's like a lot of meaning in that. Plus, like, is having a baby a miracle? Like, a lot of people would say so. At least they give lip service to that. And yet, when we're waiting in line, and that person is stamping our paper, is anyone in that room thinking about those things? No, right? Because we're just doing our, she's seen a million, the lady at the window seen a million of these. She's not like, oh my gosh, you had a baby? That is, I can't even believe that even exists. She's like, okay, congratulations. It's an ordinary scene that happens every single day. So if you think about it, imagine I had a time machine and I said, I want to show you something in the Bible. Let me take you back in time to Israel. Let's go. And you're like, okay, great. We're going to see David and Goliath or something crazy. And I take you to the temple 2,000 years ago. It's the 40th day after Jesus was born. And we're sitting there. I'm like, just wait for it. This is the craziest thing. And we're just sitting there at the temple and we just see people walking around. Some people are praying. Maybe some people are buying animals, selling animals, offering sacrifices. After a while, maybe after five hours, you'd be like, what are we looking for? Like, What am I supposed to be looking at? Like, Jesse, help me out here. Give me a clue. So there's this tension. That's what I'm trying to show you. There's this tension between what we know about Christmas and what we'd see if we were there. And I think that this tension is important for us to dive into as Christians today. We know that Jesus is the most important person who has ever lived. We know that a mere 40 days before these verses took place, history itself was split down the middle, right? Like the clock of history actually reset. It became year zero again for us. And we know that Christmas has no meaning for Christians apart from Jesus. And yet we struggle to really take that in. In fact, if we were there, we wouldn't even know what to look for. As we read this text even, what's the significance of all of this? Why is Luke giving us so much backstory? I mean, what's the significance of all these sacrifices and this baby who has to do these things and these parents who have to jump through these hoops? What's the significance even of Christmas, that he is a baby? I mean, we know about the future, but what about now? We'll get there in a moment because there is one person at least who sees what no one else seems to see. But I want to point out one clue to you, because it's in the text, in verse 22 again. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Do you see that? To present him? Everything in this whole scene is textbook. It's standard, okay? Except for one thing. Mary and Joseph do one thing differently than most people would do. Luke says they brought him up to present him to the Lord, and this wasn't normal. Because usually what would happen, and let me, just bear with me, I'll I'll explain this in a few words, I'll try to keep it short, but usually what would happen is you would pay this price for your firstborn son. Okay, it's called the redemption price. And this goes all the way back in Israel's history, okay, at the Exodus. If you remember the Exodus, God, the final plague on Egypt, was that God was going to kill the firstborn of every household, all throughout the land, right? So this included Israelites and Egyptians, okay? But how were the Israelites saved? Do you know, if you're familiar with the story, do you you remember, right? They were told to kill a lamb and put its blood over the doorway and the angel would pass over every household that was covered with the blood of the lamb. But if you follow the story a little bit further, so all the Egyptian kids, the firstborn, they die. All the Israelite firstborn are saved. But if you follow the story later, God says, actually, the Israelite firstborn belonged to me too. And you can dig into it a little bit more. But the idea is they were still deserving of death. Okay, it's not just because they were Israelites that they weren't sinners anymore. They were still deserving of death. So what God says is, in life, these firstborn are now mine. But instead of taking all the firstborn to to do something with them, what God says is, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to set aside one of the 12 tribes, the Levites. There's 12 tribes of Israel. The Levites will be a stand-in for the firstborn. Does that make sense? So instead of everyone having to send your firstborn son away to the temple or the tabernacle or whatever, the Levites will do it all. And what we'll do as they kind of are the the firstborn tribe, what everyone else will do is we'll pay a price to support them in their service when you have a firstborn. It's this recognition that someone is kind of taking your place to serve for you, dedicated to the Lord. But right here with Mary and Joseph, instead of Paying a price for a Levite to serve or whatever, they bring Jesus for service. He's not a Levite, but from the beginning, they know that Jesus' life is to be set apart. And this sets us up for the next point. The clue, though, is that it's not the baby's appearance that's different. It's the baby's life. What he is going to do that's going to be different. That's going to set him apart. That makes him special. So in this ordinary scene, there's a hint of something extraordinary. There's something in this baby's life. We know what it is. Okay, spoiler alert. We know what Jesus is going to do. But even here, there is this hint that Jesus is going to do something. Now, no one can see that. No one knows that. But one person does, crazy enough. And that's the second part of this. Okay, what no one seems to see on the surface. Second, what one man sees, verse 25. and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. People love to focus on how creepy it would be if you, you know, show up at the temple and just some random old guy just takes your child you know, and starts talking about him. I mean, imagine if that happened at church. It's 40 days after you gave birth, you're finally coming back to church and just some random guy just comes up and is like, thank you, I'm just going to take your kid. But really that's not what we want to focus on. What we want to focus on is the distinction, okay? Because everyone, what they see is a normal Tuesday or whatever day it was. We don't know. But Simeon, he sees with his own eyes the salvation of God. And it moves him so much that he blesses the Lord out loud. And he actually takes the baby from his parents and holds him in his arms because he wants to see what salvation feels like. The difference is not in what is seen on the surface, though. The difference is in what's going on beneath the surface. Because something is different about Simeon. It's not what's outside, it's what's inside. And here's the first takeaway from Simeon. Right away. How we view Christmas, how you and I, how we view Christmas, how we see these things, how we see Jesus has a lot more to do with us than Christmas itself. What I mean by that is if we don't see Christmas as being that big of a deal, or we don't see what's the significance about it, it's not because Christmas isn't a big deal, but it's because we don't have eyes to see. It's because we don't have eyes to see. I mean, maybe you just gotta take stock of your life right now spiritually. How do you view Christmas? How have you been viewing it this year? I mean, do you view it as a stressful time? Like, oh man, I hate this time of the year. Like there's so much going on. Do you view it as a lonely time? I mean, it's well known, I think, today that depression and other mental health issues get worse around the holidays every year, suicide. Do you view it as a time where, you know, you get to eat some good food or get some presents or spend time with people that you like? Do you view it as an opportunity to share your faith? Do you view it as an opportunity Maybe to disciple your kids. Do you view it as an opportunity to bless the Lord and worship? How, how do you view Christmas? And then take it a step further. What does that reveal about you and where you're at right now? I mean, if you take Christmas as a litmus, a litmus test, what does that say about your spiritual condition right now? It's a good test. You know, it's interesting. Luke doesn't tell us anything biographical about Simeon, really. I mean, if you read the Bible enough, you know that a lot of times when a major character appears, uh, something is said about him, right? Like who his father is or, or what tribe he's from or something. Oftentimes in Scripture, maybe, you know, like his job or something about his life. But here everything is internal. One, he was righteous and devout. Now, okay, the Bible says that no one is righteous, no, not one. And, and it's a different way of talking about it right here. Um, Here it means something slightly different um, since he clearly has received the grace of God. Um, But basically what Luke is saying is that he practices what he preaches. The righteousness has to do with his morality before people and the devoutness has to do with his piety before God. Okay. He's legit. That's what he's saying. Two, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, meaning his heart's desire. Okay. All he wanted for Christmas was the comfort of God's people. That God would help them. And then three, the Holy Spirit was upon him. God was with him in a special way. That's why he knows these things. I mean, in the Old Testament, before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit didn't just, you know, hang out upon people. But he's with Simeon. So the picture that's painted for us is of a true believer. This is all real for Simeon. Okay? He's not going through the motions. He's not someone who just grew up with cultural Judaism. This is real for him. His heart desires nothing more than that God would send his salvation. And I would argue that this word salvation is the hinge upon which this whole passage turns. It's the hinge upon which Christmas turns. Because the meaning we give to the word salvation determines how we'll grasp the significance of the baby who is salvation. See what I'm saying? You know, years ago, Eric and I actually went door-to-door evangelizing. I think I might have told you guys this before, um, but we went door-to-door evangelizing. It's not something we usually do, um, but we decided to do it. I think we were doing it in seminary. It was part of something we were doing with the seminary, and it was it was somewhat nerve-wracking. Um, and the fact that we were going in pairs made us look like poorly dressed Mormons who like forgot our name tags or something um, but one of the last houses we went to uh, really made an impression on me and I don't remember all the details again I'm not like good with the details but I remember this woman was there in the driveway she was going out or coming in not sure which uh, and she saw us coming up and she knew what we were going to do we had our Bibles and stuff and she said I don't have time for this right now Okay. And she said something like, you know, my son, like my family members, like in the hospital and we got to deal with this. Like, this is the last thing that I need to deal with right now. And she shut the metaphorical door and the physical door in our faces. See, the thing is, if people, if people think that what Jesus offers is the last thing that you need at the most important junctures of your life, then what do they think they need and what do they think that Jesus offers? It's how you see it. See, look, I want to show you something in this text. I touched on it, but I want to unpack the significance of some of the things that Luke mentions. For example, I talked about it, but why do you think women were considered unclean for 40 days after they gave birth? It's kind of a weird thing to think about, like... Childbearing is a blessing in the Bible. Okay, we know that. So why would you be considered unclean as if you were like a leper for 40 days? Why? You didn't commit a sin. You had a baby. Well, one of the main reasons is to teach the lesson that even in the blessing of bearing a child and bringing a child into the world, the mother is still a sinner bringing another sinner into the world. Now, why the sacrifices? Okay, there are two. There's the burnt offering for worship, but there's also the sin offering. The sin offering. This baby is 40 days old. You give a sin offering for him. Blood must be shed for atonement. And the lesson is that the wages of sin is death. Even this baby who can't even talk or walk is a sinner. And this is a big reason why the firstborn stuff is such a big deal. Luke goes out of his way to quote the Old Testament scripture. The firstborn all belong to God. Why? Because God delivered them from a death that they actually deserved. See, everything going on in the first part of this passage was, in a sense, ordinary. What we got to understand is that their ordinary was super Intense. Their ordinary was intense, for all these rituals prescribed by the law were designed to ultimately do one thing, to slap you in the face with the distance between you and Holy God. It's pretty crazy, right? To slap you in the face with your own sinfulness. You have a baby? Well, now i got to go offer a sacrifice. It's hard for us today to wrap our minds around this, I think, because none of us here for instance, grew up offering sacrifices for our sins. We don't have that visceral object lesson shoved in our faces regularly. But you have to understand that the temple was not, you know, this peaceful, serene place. I mean, in in one sense it was. But the temple was a butcher shop. A constant flow of sacrifice. I mean, the the priests, their hands were stained with blood and guts because there were so many sacrifices that needed to be made. Daily. Even circumcision. There's actually a lot that goes into the whole circumcision discussion. I'll skip the biological part. You can ask your mom and dad about that. But there's a lot that goes into it theologically. And when you read Deuteronomy 10 or or Jeremiah 4, other uh, portions of scripture, you realize that circumcision itself is actually ultimately symbolic Okay, it does mark that you're part of the covenant people, all of that, yeah. But ultimately, it has to do with showing that there's something in you that needs to be cut off, something in your flesh. Deuteronomy 10 talks about circumcision of the heart. So when it's talking about flesh, it's not just the physical flesh, it points to the spiritual flesh. There's something in us, in our hearts, in our nature that is wrong and needs to be changed, needs to have spiritual surgery done upon in some sense. So all of these things that have become a part of ordinary life in Israel, they were all intended to point to this horrific truth. That not only is there something wrong with the world, but there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. Your greatest need is a relationship with God, and your greatest problem is that you can't have it because of who you are. And this truth was laid upon the shoulders of the people of Israel, this crushing weight. And I think that if we can't, you know, feel some of that weight on us, then Christmas won't be a big deal. It'll be nice. We love the music and we love the feels, the good vibes, but it won't be necessary. But Simeon, he appreciates it. Salvation is finally here in this child, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 121. You know, I realize not many people want to talk about sin like this at Christmas. Kind of ruins the mood. A little bit, you know, we just wanted chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Not hellfire, Jesse. Come on, dude. Please. But it's all throughout this text. If you study it, it's the water that Christmas swims in. Or you could say the blood. Without sin, why did Jesus need to be born? Without sin, we don't need a Savior. See, without sin, like I said, Christmas might be still nice, but it's not necessary. So maybe today, the one question you should ask yourself, if any question, is, do I see Jesus as Simeon saw him? Look, I know people here are struggling with sin and guilt and shame and regrets. I know that there are things that stress you out, problems in the world. But do you see that in this baby is the solution to your greatest problem? There's a wordplay in the Greek text here that I want to point you, uh, point, show you real quick. Then we'll get to the final point. But in the Greek, uh, it says that Simeon, do you see this? It says that Simeon waited for the consolation of Israel. And the word for waited here is the word decamai. It's a form of the word decamai. And, and dekamai has to do with looking forward. It, it has to kind of do with receiving even. You're kind of like looking, you're waiting for this thing, you know. And then it says down in verse 28, that he took Jesus up in his arms. And the usual word for took is a pretty common word. It's like one of the first words we learn in Greek. But here it's not that word. It's the word decamai again, which is not the way you normally say it. So what Luke is saying here, the idea isn't just that he took up the baby in his arms. That's what we're picturing, right? That he took it up, like he picked up the baby. That is what's going on. But Luke is saying something deeper is going on, that he's receiving what he's always wanted. Do you see what I'm saying? It's personal. You See, friends, do we see Jesus as Simeon saw him? If we're struggling with this, then we've got to check our hearts. You know, where our treasure is, there our hearts will be. Maybe what we want is something else. And when we see Jesus, we pass by. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, someone once said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this leads to the final point. Quickly now, what should we take away from this final point? What we should see. What we should see. See, if you're a Christian here, and uh, I know most of you, I don't know everybody, if you're new or visiting, I'm Jesse, by the way. But if you're a Christian here and you believed all this stuff, then you know everything I just said, right? You know who Jesus is. You know about sin. You know about the gospel. But the tension is many of us affirm these great truths And yet they no longer seem very shocking, disruptive, or incredible. It's like the train is just rumbling and roaring, and we're just going about our business. And maybe it's because we've been distracted. You know, I talked a lot about how it was normal. You know, everything that they were doing had become normalized and ordinary. And if you study the history of Israel at all, you'll see that there were a lot of people who were Jewish who ascribed to Judaism, and yet they kind of fell into these different parties and their focus had shifted. Like there were the Pharisees, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, and these groups at risk of uh, oversimplification. Here's what they were about. The Pharisees were the legalists. They thought sin was a big deal, but they also thought that if you had the right rules and if you worked really hard, then you could overcome it. And the people who didn't were lazy or they were particularly evil. The Sadducees were the worldly compromisers. I don't even think they cared about sin that much after a while. The Essenes, they're the people who did the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? They were the ones who fled Israel. They said even the Pharisees are too sinful. All the worldly temptations out there, we're going to become monks and we're going to live out in the desert and we're going to have a pure society. And then the Zealots were the ones... Uh, who, we would, who we might call like terrorists today, they were political extremists, but really underlined their philosophy. It wasn't the violence. It was the fact that, okay, you got to get your head out of the clouds, right? You can worry about heaven when you die, but right now we got to deal with like the government and politics and the military. All of them would consider themselves faithful Jews. All of them were looking for a savior, but none of them in terms of their party beliefs were looking for the kind of savior Jesus was. Because to them, Jesus and saving people from their sins wasn't the most important thing. I mean, the Pharisees thought that they could overcome sin themselves. Why would you need a Savior who's going to die for all your sins? I mean, the Sadducees aren't even thinking about it. The Zealots wanted him to be something else. The Essenes thought that if you can just get away from all the sinners out there, then we could be pure. But the problem is the enemy is inside the castle. It's in us. What about you? Have you been distracted a little bit? Of course, you're going to hear about sin at church. But maybe over the past few months or years, you've kind of fallen into these different ways of thinking. Right? You know that, you know, I'm a sinner, but you've been working hard to overcome it on your own. You haven't really been praying about it. You haven't really relied upon Christ because you feel like, well, I mean, I kind of know how to live a good life. Or maybe you've let other things distract you. Okay, not saying that like political aims aren't important, but maybe you've let things that are passing away in this world become the number one thing. Maybe you thought that if you just got away from the world, okay, if you just cut off all the bad influences, then you would be fine. Maybe this Christmas you need to do some soul searching. Where has your heart been? What's been my attitude towards God and towards sin? Have I been taking sin lightly or have I been taking sin as I should? Look at verse 29 again. Look at what Simeon says. It says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Okay, it doesn't actually say anywhere that Simeon is old, but he keeps talking about how he can finally die now. So it's pretty easy to guess that he's near the end, but he's not afraid. Do you see that? He has perfect peace. Verse thirty, for my eyes have seen your salvation, and we can tell that he isn't thinking about a purely, you know, nationalistic salvation or just getting rid of like these wrong people. But he's going to exalt us. No, like many of his fellow Jews were thinking, uh, or many of his fellow Jews were thinking about a salvation from Roman occupation or from like worldly Sadducees or something. But he's not thinking about that because he says in verse 31 that you are prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. See, it's a light to the Gentiles. In Greek, the word Gentile, you know what a Gentile is, right? A non-Jew. The word is ethnos. It means the nations. The nations. And glory for Israel. Okay, this is a human-wide thing. This isn't about putting down one group of Jewish people over another. This isn't about exalting the Jews above the Gentiles in terms of sinfulness. Simeon understood way more than anyone else did. Now, the story is not told to us through the first-person narration of Simeon. Okay, let's get that right. The story is told to us by Luke. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This was written down for believers like us. And Luke is telling us what we need to know. So even if we're kind of distracted, we don't know where to look, Luke actually pans the camera for us and focuses in away from Simeon now to Mary and Joseph. Look what it says, verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. They marveled. See, they know some. uh, They talked to the angel, okay? The angel spoke to them about Jesus, but they don't know it all. For that matter, Simeon doesn't either, but he knows more. And he's filling in some of the story for them, and they marvel at this. They marvel at this. They know he's a special baby, obviously, but to hear these words, to know that God has sent this old man to affirm that Jesus will be the Savior of the world, it's mind-blowing and breathtaking for them. How else would he know all this unless God had sent him? See, maybe it's not just we've been distracted. Maybe we're just desensitized. And I read a story recently about a family that adopted a couple of kids from the Republic of Congo. And it was like everything was new for these kids. Right? Like the orphanage they were in, it didn't have running water or electricity. So they came to this house in America and all of a sudden, like you turn on a, a switch and the lights come on at night. Right? Or you turn on the water, you, like you open up the faucet and drinkable water comes out as much as you want. And everything was like magic to these kids. Uh, and the reason actually I read this story is because it had to do with Christmas because someone told them about Santa. They're like, Yeah, there's this guy from the North Pole, and he flies to every single house in the world, and he gives you a specialized gift, and he does it in one night with reindeer. And they're like, Sure, you know, everything else is magic. That's probably true, I guess. I don't know, there's some technology for that. See, for them, it was awesome, but for the parents, it was too. Because through the eyes of their kids, it was like they were able to see these things that were old and that they were used to, that they'd become accustomed to for the first time with fresh eyes again. So maybe what you need to do this Christmas, honestly, is you need to tell somebody about it. It could be your kids. It could be a neighbor, just a stranger or something. But maybe you just need to kind of get those pumps, you know, like, Pump in it, you know, get that the Jesus flowing. You gotta re-experience the wonder by seeing someone else experience it for the first time. I mean, can you remember the first time that you believed the gospel if you're a Christian? Almost everyone I talked to, they were like, it was crazy, right? Like I felt like I had this fire within me, like like these chains were broken off of me. I mean, I felt like I had fallen so far short. I was so convicted that I could never make it up to God. But then I realized I don't have to because but thousands of years ago on this day, outside of the city of David was crucified for me, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that just spoke to you. It changed your life. And sometimes it's that simple. I'm going to talk about Christmas next year and the year after that and probably every year till I'm dead or whatever happens. It's not that you're going to learn something new from me. Maybe you just got to pause and reflect on that first time. You have to pause and reflect that this child, this baby, was born to die. And if you're a Christian, to die for you. I mean, what are you struggling with right now? What are the regrets that keep you up at night? The times that you messed up? The things that you wish you could take back? What brings you shame? Well, what are you struggling with right now? What, what about last night? God is holy. He hates your sin. That's the bad news. You are guilty. You deserve punishment. That's the worst news. But the good news is that Christmas means that God is grace. For he sent his son to take your place. That's why I preach sin so hard in a Christmas sermon. Because I know that for those of you with eyes to see, who are feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit right now, that it will only magnify the greatness of the Savior. Verse 34, will land this plane. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that, uh, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's a bit of an awkward sentence, but basically what Simeon is saying here is that this child will be divisive. People will love him. Some people will hate him. And by his very existence, the, the hearts of people, what's inside, will be exposed But there's a little aside in here. He says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. I mean, this is a wondrous thing, right? Mary was chosen, okay? The most blessed of women, Jesus, the long-awaited Savior, all glory in the highest. And yet it's going to be harder than she could ever imagine or know at this point. It'll be like a sharp blade stabbing her right through the heart, for Mary will find herself in 33 years standing before a Roman cross, her son that she carried for nine months, that she nursed, that she did all this stuff with, suffocating on his own blood. Why? For his sins? No. But for hers and Simeon's and yours and mine, if you're a Christian, his blood is sufficient. His blood is for you. And that's what makes Christmas special. We'll close here. I heard a story. John MacArthur share once um, about his old football coach, and uh, his coach was just, you know, a football coach, a worldly, sinful guy, but he was a great coach, and Johnny, as his coach called him, Johnny Mack, he loved playing football for him, and he said that when he was in high school, he tried to, like, witness to him a little bit, but the coach didn't want to hear it, and, you know, he was a high school kid. Years went by, decades, and Johnny Mack went on to become John MacArthur, this famous preacher and Bible teacher and he had lost touch with his old coach, they hadn't spoken in, in however long, um, but then one day he received a call that the coach was in the hospital and he wanted to see him, okay, so he rushes over, he's like, of course I'm going to see old coach, and he goes in and he's like, Johnny Max here, you know, coach, I'm here, what, what do you need, and he tells him the gospel in a nutshell, and the coach is so weak, he's like covered in tubes and all these things, and, and uh, he's not totally sure what happened, right? He, he leaves, and he hopes that this guy, he says, you're the thief on the cross. Like, this is your time. Like, this is your last chance. Um, but then a couple days later, he gets a call, and the coach is actually doing a little bit better, and he wants to see him again. So he goes, and he visits, and his coach can actually communicate. He can't speak, but he writes down, and he says, what can I do for our Lord? Okay, so basically what happened was he was convicted, right? he felt that weight of sin. And he's like, what, what can I do? And John MacArthur said, or Johnny Mac, as they call him, it's not about what you can do for him. It's about what he can do for you. Or rather, it's about what he did do for you. And that's it. Friend, this Christmas, will you take some time to reflect on the great truths that you are a great sinner, but that God is a greater, that Jesus is a greater Savior. We tell someone about it, maybe even your kid today, not just for them, but for you, that you might re experience the wonder of it. And will you not let Simeon go to waste? What he waited for his whole life is right there for us to take. Will you bow your heads with me? <clears throat> I want to give you a minute to pray. Just give you a, a minute to, to come before the Lord. Maybe what you need is greater conviction. Maybe you need to repent of something. Maybe you just need to say thanks. Thank you for the cradle that led to the cross. Whatever it is between you and the Lord, I'll just give you that time now. And then I'll pray and then we'll sing.